dresser, drive a compressor, top notch, get the most, not the lesser, trash like the for $40 in the club, up the game, she gets no love, she be cross country giving all that she got, a thousand a pop, I'm pulling billions off the lot, I smashed up the gray one, bought me a red, every time we hit the parking lot, we turn head, some all right we're back once again folks live in greenwood bonjour shalom and what's up and welcome back to episode 74 of how you living the podcast recorded live in the million dollar studios atop the Chaz tower and we're here in greenwood seattle washington to bring you the news and as always, we like to start this show off with a question to my compadre in podcasting, Mr. Chaz, how you living? I'm doing all right. Uh, catching up on some Netflix shows. Uh, started watching uh, When They See Us. Uh, just finished the first episode of that. That that one's heavy, man. That one is seriously heavy. The, the story of the Central Park Five, as the media kind of picked up on the story back in 89 when it first happened. Uh, They were labeled that, and um, basically juveniles, people between the ages of like 13 and 17, served between 6 and 13 years of their life in jail for a rape crime that was later confessed and committed by uh, a different person who was in jail at the time for life and went ahead and told details about the case that they hadn't released to the public, Uh as well as a direct DNA match to samples that were taken from the actual site oh wow exonerating those uh now you know older but previously juveniles uh it's it's a kind of moment in time uh there's kind of a weird part about it is that one of the main characters is felicity huffman oh yeah and she's obviously caught up in this whole college for pay scandal um and it doesn't detract really too much from the storyline because her character is kind of adversarial so she's not really somebody we're going to be supporting anyway mm-hmm. but it is kind of weird just given like the tmz culture of, of news cycles to see somebody it'd be like if louis ck was in like some type of t- tv documentary that would be like oh, oh yeah well this was filmed before the new york times report you know but um but like I said, yeah, she doesn't detract too much from the emotion of the storyline, which is, it's really heavy, man. I only got through the first two, and I kind of had to take a break and kind of watch some some less serious stuff, because you're just dealing with things that <clears throat> ultimately we're still dealing with today. Of course. But seeing it in the lens of the 80s New York, and like this attempt by the, the kind of uh, authority figures that would be to make the city safer and cleaner... Mm-hmm which, uh, you know, was really just kind of locking down on the youth in Harlem, essentially, was kind of where they focused that effort on. Mm-hmm. Um, so very racially driven motives. And, uh, and yeah, it's just a night where a bunch of kids happened to be in Central Park. Um, some of them were committing, um, you know, light robberies, and there was some fights that kind of broke out, and they... they assaulted a few people but those crimes were a lot less than the heinous crime that was committed in the park that night Uh by uh this other gentleman um and so yeah that's a that's an interesting thing good that you're uh uh keeping up on that what else did you uh catch on the old stream box um there's also um, i believe netflix brought it back for a third season don't know if they'll get a fourth but um it's the Kiefer sutherland uh vehicle designated survivor 
Wow. And this one is very interesting because they are very like it, it's about a president who became president after the Capitol blew up. Uh-huh. Uh, and and I think it was on like one of the main three networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, one of those. And then it got canceled after uh, two seasons. But then I think Netflix brought it back. And now with Netflix, they're allowed to curse, which makes it awesome because you're like, who wh- who doesn't curse in politics, right? Right. Like, well, they don't ever do it like when they're on the floor. But, you know, behind closed doors, they're probably like, fuck this, fuck that, all that. Right. Uh, and it's very interesting because uh, it, it definitely has allegories to what's going on right now. Like, he's a he uh, he's an independent. Um, and I think he was like HUD secretary. Um, and anytime there's a state of the union, there is one designated survivor. So just in case, you know, the government gets fucked up, which actually happened there because the, uh, the Capitol blows up and basically like every member of Congress was there except for that one person. So then they have to rebuild the government from that point. Wow. Yeah. Which, yeah, is an actual, yeah, like you said, is a thing that they, they take aside somebody. Um, and then they even do it kind of, um, more unofficially when it comes to the the administration like the white house like they will during times of crisis they will separate the vice president and the president mm-hmm. so that the leadership isn't um all in one place um <clears throat> like they did after or during the events of 9-11 so uh interesting and uh yeah i mean it it's interesting like thinking about our government if it starts to break down because what we have right now is this president who's kind of main goal is to weaken the institutions that have been supporting the government for the last 200 years you know mm-hmm. um and even newer things like the education and environmental uh programs of the epa um but he it it does seem that basing on like his reaction to the original election and leading up to the uh november whatever that was in 2016 now um that he was using terms like fraud and 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 mm-hmm. that there was going to be ballot stuffing on the dim side and um so there there is this question of whether whatever happens in the 2020 election if uh Trump is going to use some type of legitimacy argument in in order to kind of hold on to power perhaps if if by chance he he doesn't win through the the normal means the electoral college so um it's yet to be seen. It could just be speculation. A lot of people think that the powers that be in the Defense Department and the Justice Department wouldn't stand up for something like that, and they would uh, force the election to be deemed as a responsible and and view of the people. But, you know, we're yet to see. And it's all conjecture at this point, of course. But it's interesting to hear about, like, that kind of situation, like designated survivor situation where everything is kind of being... In this case, you know, they're murdered out of context. But what we're kind of seeing is like a uh, diluting of power in, in these in- institutions and, and agencies um, and, and yielding more directly to the executive. So I don't know if he continues to do that the next four years, if he does get reelected, we, we could see, you know, sweeping changes as he continues this kind of measured approach at uh, limiting the power of those things. And he could do things like extend the number of um, years a president serves if he reached out to, you know, the Senate and the Congress and they were able to amend that rule that I think was only changed in the 1940s. I mean, it's a constitutional amendment, yeah. so you would need uh, two-thirds of the states to actually ratify that. And so then, yeah. that's a little harder to do. It's a little harder. 
but it's not not possible. Right. And then obviously the Supreme Court would have to uphold it as being constitutionally valid. Um, but yeah, all that is conjecture. Obviously, what he's already doing in uh, in the current like foreign policies and things is is enough to be wary of of his stance as the president. So, uh, anything else on the callback side? I guess I guess I want to call back to um, my talk about the Blazers who were uh, knocked out of the contention in the NBA Finals. And shout out to uh, the Raptors who are currently three and one against the uh, Golden State Warriors. So if you're keeping track of the NBA, that's a, a cool situation there. And sadly, the Blazers will have to try again next year. Uh, and with that, I guess we are officially in our episode. Uh, well, I did want to call back to something because we actually never really transitioned to the callback. We we just did the opening. We didn't do callbacks, but it, oh, okay, it, it, it's all good. Um, I did want to talk about Elizabeth Warren's new proposed two percent wealth tax on individuals who have a net worth of of excess of fifty million dollars and a three percent wealth tax on billionaires. Uh, so definitely I'm looking at, like, I pulled up the first thing that I found just so I could reference it. And this one person, uh, brings up an interesting thing about like how with that 3% uh, tax uh, impact charities. And I mean, they bring up a good point, but I, I think in the grand scheme of if you want better things for America, this might sound blasphemous to a lot of y'all. I think charities are a bad idea. Right. Cause ultimately, cause charities one, they give them the people, uh, tax breaks. Right. right, which in, in taxes, you know, the fungibility of money, as Paul Ryan would love to say. Um, that would give the American government a chance to actually take that money and use it where they need to, and it would be a consistent stream of money instead of, like, lump sums. But the more pernicious thing to watch out for, if you think most of the uh, goodwill among people should come from charities, is that basically rich people then can dictate who gets money and who doesn't. Right. And They'll set up charities and stuff that kind of hold the money and 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 constantly they're getting caught with their fingers in the cookie jar mm-hmm. as so to speak and yeah. re re pulling that money out and putting it into investments that they they themselves control mm-hmm. yeah so yeah and and i think that's I think that's kind of evident when people talk about healthcare right now and everyone's like, well, I mean, if you have a real problem, just open a GoFundMe. And I'm like, well, Kickstarter and GoFundMe weren't built to be right? the backbone of American healthcare system. No, it was not. But when you look at some of our friends and people who are in service industry and things, when major events happen, like someone hits them with a car but doesn't stop or mm-hmm. um, they get injured on the job and don't have health insurance to their company, uh, they wind up with these, you know, huge medical bills and they do have to utilize kind of crowdsourcing in order to make up the difference of that. And obviously, if the system itself was set up so all Americans had insurance, it would be a cheaper pro- uh, process than just collecting all this money. First of all, hospitals charge more when you don't have insurance. Like, right. Then insurance companies negotiate down prices. Mm-hmm. So they don't even pay the full price themselves. They negotiate based on kind of quality of care and lump sum payments that they make to the healthcare industries. And so, uh, you know, if you're coming straight out of pocket, a lot of times you pay a higher premium than you would if you were being insured. And so things like that. Also, um, 
just the the fact that insurance companies control costs right now in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, they dictate a lot of the prescription costs. They dictate uh, the payments that are made for diagnostic imaging or for physical therapy and those type things. Uh, that basically, if these systems were allowed to be in a free market system that didn't have these kind of uh, players that were adjusting the numbers, uh, those those services probably would be a lot cheaper. Oh, yeah, for sure. And proven so in most countries. Like, if you look at the price of an X-ray around the world, it's like 4 to $5 in Southeast Asia. And it, you know, is like 30-something in Europe. And then here, it's like 100-something dollars. Right. And, yeah. and that's just unnecessary. Well, another thing to point out, too, is... There is a lot of conflation of prices from, you know, the insurance companies and everything like that. But this is actually bureaucracy in a certain sense, um, because I believe on both sides of the coin, they have to do a lot of administrative work. And that administrative work is costly as well, too. Yeah. So that might be something that, you know, uh, if, if you're like a laissez-faire capitalist or whatever, maybe that's something Silicon Valley can help out with and automating those things. But definitely because of uh, HIPAA. And yeah. all that, um, and actually, I have some a few friends that worked on uh, software for medical things. So there's stuff being worked on out there, but there there's just that confluence of you know greedy individuals, uh, just the individuals you have to make sure that all your files stay secret, and just the inflation of prices between you know middlemen that makes our healthcare system just wackadoo. Yeah, yeah, no, that is a big part, and you know we're seeing Google and Apple. Uh, purchase enterprises in the currently in the electronic medical records fields and um, you know they're they're trying to ease access and transparency and and create more um, technological kind of advances in how you schedule or how mm-hmm. you receive results and those type of things and and HIPAA is definitely a protection for us especially in this era of stolen identity oh yeah um, but at the same time, yeah, it does, occur, you know, makes innovation a little slower because everyone has to make sure the information or I think they call it, um, it's like PHI. It's like personal health information. It's mm-hmm. kind of a generic term they use to discuss all the elements of your health care that might be put into an electronic record. And that PHI has to be guarded so that, you know, we know who sees it. We know who has access to it and when they have access to it. And what pieces of the puzzle someone should have access to, mm-hmm. you know, and so, uh, and I and I think those basically have been proven. I mean, the Epic system, which is I think around eighty percent of the medical records in the country, uh, most of the major hospitals here in Seattle use Epic. Uh, was started in nineteen seventy nine by a computer programmer in Wisconsin, and mm. she's one of the few kind of women in the computer science field who achieved kind of the status of CEO of a major company like that, and she still runs it today Oh, nice! out of Wisconsin, and uh, it's either Wisconsin or Minnesota, sorry if I get those two a little confused, a um, lot of lakes, <laughs> uh, but they, uh, but they, you know, they're hitting certain... Um, you know, kind of large-scale parameter issues with the fact that they just have so much information that they're trying to move at any time. Oh, yeah. You know, and I I think that's kind of why there's this opening now for, like, the Google and Apple, the people who have already been moving even more data, Mm -hmm. you know, dealing with an iTunes store, for instance, you know, or, like, an Amazon, dealing with, like, the number of transactions they do daily. Mm -hmm. um, It does kind of feed into their kind of technology background to maybe get into that field and would probably create some competition for epic going forward um 
but yeah, it's all about fail safe. It's all about logins. It's all about kind of controlling when and where you get access to that information. And, uh, and yeah. And on a side note, you know, back to, um, Elizabeth Warren's, uh, uh, tax idea, which was outside of, you know, um, healthcare. She was talking about how the money is spent by the wealthiest Americans, which in, in her proposal, it's only taxing the 0.1%, which is those who make uh, additional over 50 million uh, in assets. And that, that over 10 years could raise $2.75 trillion of additional U.S. tax money, which could be used to afford uh, nuanced changes to the healthcare system, perhaps uh, helping the student debt situation or making it education for people that are going to go to school more affordable, um, you know, and that in in line with some other stuff that they could do maybe with defense department spending or um, advancements in, in climate and how we can, you know, help save this planet, which is still to this day the number one issue. Uh, we can't save each other if we don't have a planet to live on. So. Indeed. So, yeah, uh, it's an interesting proposal by Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, I mean, as time goes on and kind of how we've been seeing um, how the Biden announcement is being treated in the media, you know, he's kind of taking a lot of hits from the left. Um, he, uh-huh. he originally supported the, um, I think it's called the Hyde Amendment, which w- oh, yeah. restricts federal funding for abortions. And he was saying from a Catholic point of view, he, he believes that part to be, he thinks women should have the choice, but no federal money should be used. And I think a lot of people on the left kind of hear that as a, a muffled response to abortion, basically saying that you're, you're, you're not really supporting us if you're, if you're kind of holding back those type of regulations. Because mm-hmm. the way to look at it is the impact of that amendment is that if you can't, give money to <clears throat> if public money can go to charity and we found this out uh back when planned parenthood had their scandal in 2015 and and people when they were grilling the president of planned parenthood they're like are you making sure you don't use that money for um uh abortions and if you look at their fact sheet it says completely like this is the money that we get from this this is the unrestricted money this is all that jazz so what the Hyde amendment is really saying impactfully is that um those people who are poor and uh, people of color and it usually revolves around that because of socioeconomic things that led to that right you're basically saying that if you don't uh support slashing the Hyde amendment then you basically don't support support low-income people getting abortions okay Without seeking it through another like organization or private organization, essentially mm-hmm. private nonprofit. Um, interesting, and and so he's backed off of that recently and said that he he doesn't actually support the Hyde Amendment. Um, but like you know, and I've I've been a, a Joe apologist multiple times on the show. In fact, you know, I told you back in 2012. Um, I did a, a study on the trends of what 2016 was going to do, oh. and Joe was my man. Joe was my my blue collar Pennsylvania senator who was going to ride uh, his kind of central moderate uh, Democratic v- values into the White House. Uh, he did manage to do that. It was just on the coattails of Barack Obama in uh, 2008, mm-hmm. and along with the 2012 election, but um. You know, in recent weeks and months and in kind of experiences I've had, I've I've I'm I'm leaning more towards one of these uh, lefter sided uh, candidates, you know, and, you know, the the most outspoken currently is Elizabeth Warren. Um, we're hearing more about Pete Buttigieg. We're hearing a little more from Andrew Yang. 
and obviously Bernie is still out there and a factor, but there is something to align Bernie, Trump, and um, Biden as this kind of old man voice, you know, that it's like, even though they're on different sides of the coin, they they all kind of represent this one generational kind of view mm-hmm. and value system, and um, it doesn't it doesn't reflect the nuances of where we are, and it definitely doesn't reflect where we're trying to go. That's true. And so, and Elizabeth Warren, who at least you're she's younger than them, and at least you're electing a woman uh, and getting kind of a new kind of set of point of view and values into the White House. Obviously, a buddyage is like almost a double generational skip oh like, yeah he's a millennial like, like yeah he's on the tail end of millennials but he's still a millennial right would be would be a very interesting candidate and then andrew yang you know uh an asian american and you know supporting some system like ubi as his main platform mm-hmm. you know, ubi is his wall you know his build a wall is let's give a thousand dollars to all you know yeah and as i've mentioned to people before like uh, today I have a little bit to th- say about uh, Pete Buttigieg, um, and then I'm going to do Tulsi, but then after that I'm going to do Andrew Yang, and I think Andrew Yang is interesting because in my most cursory things, in the groups that I'm in that have a way more of a right lean to him, he's like really popular, like interesting. It, yeah, I, I'm like like him, and actually Tulsi Gabbard is a little popular there too, but I think Tulsi Gabbard talks about the free speech thing, which is. Uh, a big thing on the right because it seems like a lot of the big companies are taking down their voices in a certain sense so i can see why uh they would be a fan of her there but yeah i'm interested to see what i find when i dive into like their interviews and what their political platforms are and everything because those two seem like they might be a bridging like uh be able to bridge the divide just a little bit so who knows right well yeah, and I mean that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm definitely uh, further left, and uh, and and I'm seeing, you know, we got we we have to go for, and I do like certain other smaller campaigns. I like the fact that I found out Ben Glebe's campaign is an actual campaign. Oh yeah, he legitimately wants to be in the debates and move the debate forward and be um, somebody who challenges Trump. I also like our current governor Inslee because his message is so strongly about the environment. Oh yes. You know, and we know <laughs> that it comes from a progressive state and he has progressive values just based on his agenda in this, in the, uh, state house here. And, um, I just think that those candidates are important too to kind of bring back into the discussion. And it is funny cause they're kind of at the same level as Buttigieg, but somehow he's gotten all this, recent press and i mean for a 36 year old running for president uh he he's making some head waves man he's 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 really impressive it's it's probably the most impressive campaign of someone at his age level in the presidential politics has ever seen i i i think when when uh obama and when clinton ran in their like mid 40s people were talking about their lack of experience you know and here this guy's almost a decade younger so mm-hmm. Uh, before we slide in the episode, I just wanted to uh, talk about a, a new poll that came out of Des Moines. So I think they're one of the early states that vote in the Democratic caucus. And right now, Biden's still on top. Uh, he still has that notoriety and appeal at 24%. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is still there, some points under him at 16%. Uh, then Elizabeth Warren is shot up. Right. Like she in the last time they did this poll last month, she wasn't even on the list. And now 14 percent of people support her. Uh, oh, no. 15 percent of people. Sorry. And then 
Trailing the pack there is uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, with 14%, and then Kamala Harris at 7%, and everybody else is just around 2% or something like that. So definitely Elizabeth Warren is making some headway with her policies, and definitely, uh, but I guess uh, one thing I did realize uh, that Pete Buttigieg says, maybe I shouldn't say that until we get into him, but he talks a lot about um, how the right has had a monopoly on the values-based argument. Uh, and that's true because like, uh, as someone like, as someone who's registered independent, but has voted mostly democratic, it has been about the policies and the issues and not about values. And I would say, and I, and for me, honestly, that's a blind spot. Like I don't actually interact with the world heavily on my values. So I'm kind of like, huh. so like, if we have more individuals who are from the, that have those political leanings, I would like to learn more about what it is to interact with the world, like primarily from your values in that way and want your laws and what your policies to reflect that. Cause I'm kind of like, they, they do in a certain sense, but not in like a dogmatic sense and maybe in other ways. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And with that, we have exited Kaka callbacks. Because I forgot to mention it. I will also mention that officially this is episode 74. But we did record one earlier today. And it did not save. And it was by far one of our best episodes. It was. So this will be interesting. Uh, We're glad to bring you some content. And still kind of hit some of the points that we were making. Uh, But uh, just know that we're we're feeling a little solemn about losing uh, our first lost episode for you guys. Right. Feeling a little salty. Yeah. A little salty. uh, But. We are here for episode 74. We are recording this one. It is clearly happening. In two As I can see the red numbers counting up. (laughs) So uh, we'll get this one out to you today. Uh, And as always, man, I like to look to my friend Chaz to kind of see where we should steer the ship. What kind of important topics do you have for the people today? Uh, Well, there's Trump's tariffs. uh, And they're also... Uh, since since we have some greater context since we've had a conversation earlier today, um, you recently listened to the episode of, with uh, David Pakman and Joe Rogan and some stuff that they talked about there because I thought it was very interesting to hear him talk to Joe Rogan directly because uh, it was he like right now I, I should say that I'm having a little bit of an inward values fight between leftism and like social progressivism or something it's like it being a social democrat it basically the divide is do I support capitalism the way it is now or should we just burn that shit to the ground I don't know <laughs> right, like, right. And, and and I'll admit to you I'm torn because you know I I grew up learning how to make money in really crafty ways and like that hustle culture. But I can also understand how sort of debilitating that can be in some ways and how limiting that can be in some ways and the certain expectations that puts on us societally and how that might not benefit us collectively over the long run. So it, it is something that, you know, I'm diving into and I'm kind of, you know, ambivalent about right now. And so, so yeah, so we'll see in that case, but well, and it's funny, man, like uh, this Trump presidency, I haven't heard the word tariff so much since <laughs> U.S. history, my like junior year of high school, when we were talking about throwing tea into the Boston Harbor. Right. These goddamn tariffs, these U.K. 
fucking House of Commons and Lords are putting upon us, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, stamp acts and things were all you know, unique tariffs. And it felt like it was a word that nobody really knew, mm-hmm. you know, for like when I learned it when I was like 17, I remember it being like a new word to me. And Trump's pulling it out like it's fucking LOL or like you know a dab move you know it's like it's like he's brought it into the 21st century and it's it's crazy and it's his it's his new favorite word i mean seriously if his whole election was about a wall his whole presidency this year is about tariff tariff tariffs tariffs on china tariffs on mexico Mm -hmm. you know sorry he gets in fights with justin trudeau he's gonna be like tariffs on logging tariffs on maple syrup yeah i mean he like the recent tariffs that came about is like basically he's like there's still too uh, too many migrants coming in at the border and the border security can't really do an effective job of actually being able to make sure they can come in and if they're asylum seekers or not and and he's basically saying, yo, Mexico, you need to do something about this. And if you don't do something about this, I'm going to add 5% tariffs to 10% tariffs and 25% tariffs, um, in, I think, up until August. Um, and then that will continue until he, I guess he feels satisfied about them doing something about it. Although Mexico has already been doing something about it. I believe they sent down approximately 7,000 troops down to the Guatemala, Guatemalan border in order to deal with uh, immigrants and stuff coming from uh, Venezuela and things that are happening there, sort of in Central America and in Northern South America. So, yeah. Well, and he's messing with white people's avocado toast, so he's he's really picking a fight at this point in time, you know. Plus, I was seeing that the Chinese tariffs could raise the price of uh, vape cartridges. Oh hell! So no. now he's going against vape culture. That's oh, like the no. hottest thing on TikTok, man. Like he can't <laughs> he can't go against vape culture in 2019. You got to be the vape president if you want to get elected again in 2020. Right. The biggest impact that the Mexican tariffs would have is on cars because parts of cars are built in in in, ugh, in Mexico <laughs> and uh, sent over here. <laughs> is that your sentiment for me? Like, ooh, Mexico is a beautiful place, Chaz. That's, no, that wasn't a, <laughs> ew, that was me, you know, fumbling over my words and kidding. not trying to have dead air. So you get blue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to isolate that one for sure. <laughs> That's definitely going to become a bit. Welcome back to Blue. <laughs> but no, yeah, what, what you're saying. Uh, uh, yeah, so. Mexican tariffs on the cars. Cars are going to be affected by this. Right, and especially with, like, if you understand, because if you look at the American economy, I don't know about other world economies, but just think about it. Just think about how you live your life at the moment and think about the cadence in which things happen, right? Because they happen by month, they happen by season, and they happen by year. And when it comes to car companies, car companies are always having sales, especially around, you know, big holidays. So when they have their Labor Day sale, like that's when the 25% taxes would be on there. So how are they going to have their Labor Day sales where they're saying like, it's the year in deal because, um, Fiscally speaking, a lot of companies do their in their fiscal year um, at the end of September. So the reason why they do that year in sale um, during Labor Day is to try to get as much on the books as they can before they have to file their taxes for the end of the year. So, but if there's a 25% tariff on certain parts that are coming in to America to build those cars, 
like you're going to be paying more money for your cars and right. and they're going to say like oh yeah it's a sale but you know even your eight thousand dollar car might cost you twelve thousand dollars now right. and you know people who actually look for that time to actually get deals on new cars um that's going to increase their car note that means there's going to have less money for them to spend in the economy and ultimately in the long run that could hurt the economy so right so yeah i i think it's interesting that he's doing this but you, you can poke it at 45 saying that no you've never taken an economics class before but you know we know he doesn't think that way so it's kind of like it's kind of good to see that at least some people in the GOP are kind of like, this is getting overboard. Like, well, right. what are you doing? Well, like, fuck wrong with you. <laughs> right. Well, because they're recognizing how an actual tariff works. We're not tariffing these countries right. or the citizens of these countries. We're ultimately tariffing U.S. consumers because all of these companies are going to pass the buck along to us as the consumers when we go to buy these products. And those consumers are those uh GOP people's constituents. Mm -hmm. Those are the voters that have put them in office. And so they know that if suddenly they can't afford their next Buick or Ford F-150, they may as well be out of a job, perhaps. Right. Because they didn't deliver the promises, i.e. On the, on the Trump campaign bandwagon, or in the midterms if they managed to keep their seat. So, uh, you know, the, the, this tariffs thing, the war on... on and manufacturing and 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 big business that he's doing right now through these tariffs is ultimately going to be worse for the economy for America because we're going to have less money in the system as as consumers are are forced to like you say spend more money on uh car notes and uh and those type of things. Also, you know, that kind of goes in uh line with when we were talking about Andrew Yang and that whole UBI thing. Uh, how much of that money, if you just give somebody a thousand dollars, goes back into the economy? It, it, most of it should. Most of it should and would, because most of it would be going to people who are economically, you know, de deprived of of finances, and so that thousand dollars goes right back into things they need. If you give it to a rich person, which he's saying every citizen deserves it, you, you know, if you have ten million dollars in the bank, a thousand dollars, you're not going to spend it. There's no reason to. You're not. You're mm -hmm. not waiting to spend that money. But that's such a high. Like we just said, making over fifty million is point one percent of America. So there's so much more in that ninety nine point nine percent. Um, that make less than that. That thousand dollars, as you get in the bigger, bigger chunks, is is useful. And so, you know, things like this. That's like in in a mine. That's like an anti tariff. Like instead of like restricting the amount of money your citizen has, it's increasing it. You know, and obviously, being a Democrat, Yang and all the other people on the left wouldn't be starting these uh, trade wars with these countries. I mean, of course not. I mean, it's one thing to try and hold. China accountable for their human rights violations of course and their treatment of Taiwan and 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 that was kind of a weird part that like he mentioned Taiwan as its own country this week interesting which is something that like historically is is a US stance like mm. when we first started the UN part of the UN charter said that uh China would never be a, a member of the security council oh okay and that Taiwan is a unique member and <clears throat> slowly but surely the Chinese muscled their way into the Security Council and w gave less legitimacy to Taiwan that they call Taipei and that they consider to be um, their their own land. And so uh, it was interesting that in this like fodder of tariffs, he stated this thing that I sometimes support. Like, I don't want to get in between China and Taiwan. I think that's that's something that 
we really can't understand fully. Um, but at the same time, I know that Taiwan would like to remain independent. Mm-hmm. And given any opportunity to, they would. So by him mentioning that, it's like the one like win that comes out of this like total shit storm that he rarely even does. Like occasionally he'll make like a statement that's positive, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing is because of his hyper nationalism and really trying to project the idea of America first, he's actually done some things that in the long run would have been better for America if he had did it. And I'm talking specifically about the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TTP. And a lot of people didn't like the idea, but the whole idea is that when you it looks at when you look at that part of the world. China, when it comes to its manufacturing and its control and its influence, is a juggernaut. And the only way to actually have a force against that juggernaut is a unifying force between all of the other smaller nations in that area and for us to collectively be trade partners in order to defend against that. And, of course, like people who looked into it and supported it knew that... um, especially after you know the whole idea that we were going to put the low-wage jobs over there in order to booster our economy by being you know more about information and more like you know using your brain I guess a little bit and less about the manufacturing but then plenty of people especially people um, in which you might call flyover states uh, actually getting left behind with that so uh, the fact that he did that it, it leading up to these tariffs now is kind of just a snowball effect of how yeah we know what you were trying to do but the impact of what you're trying to do actually wasn't having the effect that you wanted to so it's definitely very interesting to see where this whole uh trade war with china and possible trade war with mexico even though he's like also like the whole nafta thing that he thinks is bad but of course again trump's things they're bad because they basically said manufacturing will not be done here in america they'll be done over there and of course, the people he was supporting was like, I want those manufacturing jobs to come back. And he's like, that's what I'm going to do for you. And of course, because the devil's in the details, um, it wasn't that simple. So, yeah. And, and you know, there's there's like a kind of a, <clears throat> a timid deal right now uh, that, you know, Mexico is going to agree to. Uh, limit the uh, immigrative movements that are coming out of its country uh, it, to to kind of try and appease part of this. So we're kind of in a a, a partial deal on it um, versus the China one, which just kind of seems to be at a stalemate. Mm-hmm. We want to impose the tariffs, and and China is is opposing that um, stance. Um, and we'll see. Obviously. <clears throat> the the immigration issue is is complicated um I, it's it's so hard because we i mean at this point we've admittedly lost citizens like you know juvenile citizens of uh mexico who or whichever country they had traversed mexico to get over to america we've we've actually misplaced humans mm-hmm. which which is ridiculous and um and you know every time you see anything inside these detention centers it's uh it's just terrible the the type of life that we're we're providing for people who honestly their only crime is to want to live here 
you know, and and it, it it's not they're not the rapists and the criminals that he said, and a lot of them are juveniles and underaged, and they're already sick or they're pregnant or some situation where they're they're in need, and you know we're basically putting them in jails. Yeah, we're treating them worse than we even treat our people in jails who we already treat like shit. Right. Yeah. Bluntly put, um, the very irresponsible <laughs> handling of this and you know, led to whatever implicit xenophobia is there has literally led to people dying. Right, like, yeah. that's the impact of that all, right? So, whatever the fuck you may think about it, like, the fact that they don't have their shit together and people are dying is impact enough to be like, no, fuck this bullshit. So, yeah, so yeah, like, it, it, it's, it's just annoying, right? But, you know. And, and that, you know, the, the news cycle being what it is, you know, in the next, you know, unfortunate violent shooter mm-hmm. or uh, natural disaster takes the front page. And honestly... This immigration issue has kind of seemed like it's going on a da- decline as far as the nature of the media uh, kind of keeps it in our eyes and focus. Mm-hmm. And from the activism spot, I'm not hearing more about it. I'm kind of hearing less at this point, even though the issue is still there. Yeah, it's happening. I don't want to say on the fringes, but, you know, there's always you no know, advocacy groups and nonprofits and people who are working at it from all angles, from a policy angle, from trying to help individuals who are actually being incarcerated um, in when they're not supposed to be. And definitely one of the things that um, if you're listening and you want to make an impact of it, definitely look at um, the courts. Uh, because there, there's been a lot of, I don't want to call it sensationalism, but I guess if you put it in a fictional format on a TV show, it's a little bit sensationalized, but, uh, two shows, Proven Innocent and We the People, um, have done episodes about just basically how the immigration court system is and basically like you've probably heard it tons of times before but if you watch those episodes that have it you can kind of visually see the impact of it of somebody who is three four five like youngsters just in front of a judge who don't speak english and the judge is basically talking to them like oh yeah do you know this do you know that blah 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 all right stamp them you're gone right like how is anybody supposed to defend themselves that way right right it is like the whole system is fucked up Right. And definitely, if I'm looking at any presidential candidate that is going to look at something like this and most of the issues that I look at is, are you attacking the root cause? Because I think a lot of the times we don't talk about our problems in America at the root causes. We only talk about the fucking band-aids we put on things that are cancerous. And that's, I think, a really big problem. Right. Yeah. And and going forward, you know, uh this migration issue is a world issue. It's something we need to understand and focus on. And like, where, where are they coming from? Why are they leaving where they're, cause uh, the desperation comes from a lot of sources. First of all, it comes from the projection as America as a place where you can come, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately our history has, has forced people to think we're actually an accepting nation. Mm-hmm. So if, and especially if they have a rudimentary understanding of English, so they can't see, kind of what our newspapers are saying and how it's become more of a hot button issue in the you know latter part of the 20th century and moving into the 21st um but traditionally we've been a location that people can find uh asylum and and seek this and it's kind of in this new form rhetoric uh mostly coming from conservatives mostly coming from border states 
um, that are talking about this wave of immigration that's taking over American jobs and the economy and forcing people out of their land and homes or whatever. Uh, that that's like it's it's first of all a lie. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not happening in at the level that they're talking. It's happening at. And then the other part is it is a part of our history and our culture as Americans to be accepting and. Um, Ultimately, yeah, some of these people would like to stay in their home countries. And if we could help them with skills or could help them get away from violent crimes that are happening down there, or we can help understand the people that are coming from those nations, how we can help their nations. Mm -hmm. Because I know that is like a conservative kind of look is sometimes like, well, if we fix Mexico, we won't have this problem, you know. And it's like, yeah, to a degree, if, if, if Mexico was a priority to us because it's right on our doorstep and American business was going there to help Mexico become a better Mexico as well as Mm -hmm. utilize the skill set that their labor force has um, you might see less of this and then if you extended that obviously into further into Central and South America where a lot of these people are also coming from where countries don't have any accountability for the government and there's complete corruption and violence and uh, no education and, and, and disease is rampant and all these things that people are trying to escape and and coming to America. So it, it's a two-pronged approach. We have to be willing to accept them here. We need to work on how we can accept them here. And then we have to look at how diplomacy and international relations can be built with these certain countries. Obviously, I don't like the role of America as the world police because mm-hmm. I do think we're, we overstep that boundary a lot. And um, I would like to see the UN get more involved in this kind of process and of everything. Course. Um, I, I, I would like to see it's a, an international governing body take on the role of international migration and, and human movement. Um, and, you know, maybe in the future we'll start to see that. Uh, obviously, we can create incentives through business and through trade and, you know, through technology advancement uh, for these countries to perhaps treat their citizenry better mm-hmm. <clears throat> and limit this flow. Because ultimately... Most of these people are happy where they live as as a place. They're just not happy with the circumstances that are occurring where they live, you know, and they're not even necessarily happy once they get here, you know, because we don't afford them necessarily the comfort of, of feeling confident in their everyday because they're just maybe learning the language or mm-hmm. the culture itself. And then um, on top of that, we're not yielding them, you know, uh, life-changing jobs you know you're coming over here and all of a sudden you're picking strawberries or all of a sudden you're cleaning hotels you know and it's enough that you can send something home to your family but it's not like changing your life you know but what's changed your life is you're maybe not so scared of a cartel getting to you oh yeah or you have access to health care and you're not going to die of of some simple ailment um that you might in your in your home country so Indeed, yeah, and like because remember, people been scapegoating Venezuela as a failed state and a failed state because of socialism uh, for a long time, and that framing is very pernicious. That's like my favorite word. I'm gonna use that way too much these days. So look it up so you know what it means. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's like yeah. So we know what's going on down there. We definitely need to make core changes to the complexities of the system, and definitely the world police thing, but also the propping up different regimes. Uh, yeah. for for corruption just so we can get their oil is a part of the problem as well too. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that was going on in Venezuela with that guy who's like the leader of the opposition. Like, 
I, I thought I really supported him, but now I'm like, I'm not sure. You know, I know I don't like the Maduro government and what he's doing, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I like the idea of like this super U.S. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's ever worked. You know, like if you take examples of the Shah in Iran, mm-hmm. or um, you know, our original person in Afghanistan who we propped up, who ended up being super corrupt, and mm-hmm. like, or Vietnam as a proxy war all the way back to the seventies. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, those things and more on episodes of How You Living. Uh, for my simple topic today, I just wanted to talk about uh Toronto, Canada, and it's Toronto rappers that I, ra- rappers Toronto rappers. We're talking about Drake today. Aubrey no, Graham, y'all. We're talking about Toronto Raptors. Real chair Jimmy, whose global ambassador is Drake. So <laughs> Drake is involved. You call uh, me on my cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. But then, uh, so the Toronto Raptors are uh, playing tomorrow game six of the NBA Finals the at home in Toronto against the defending champions, uh, Golden State Warriors. And uh, it's a real moment for uh, a Canadian squad to possibly win and raise a rafter or a, a trophy or a banner in the rafters and, and receive a trophy. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting just to talk about Toronto Raptorism in a U.S. sport or in a U.S. dominated league, the NBA, and kind of like the history of Canadian uh, teams in our leagues. Because it happens in NHL, they're the they're like 50-50, the teams between Canada and the U.S. Um, in the original six, five of the teams were Canadian. One was the Boston Bruins, who also just won today in St. Mm-hmm. Louis to force a 17th Game 7 in the history of the Stanley Cup Finals. So we'll see who wins in Boston on Wednesday. But outside of the NHL, there's usually very few teams. Uh, the MLB or Major League Baseball has had a tradition in Toronto with the Toronto Maple Leafs, who actually won a couple titles back in the 90s. Uh, and then they had a pretty well-followed team, the Montreal Expos, uh, who's actually the team who drafted Randy Johnson and ended up getting traded. Uh, it was a trade uh, early in that season to the Mariners and played his rookie season with the Mariners. But uh, but yeah, the Expos were, were a supported team in Montreal mm-hmm. um, and then eventually was moved to Washington, D.C. and became the Nationals franchise. Uh, there's talk that if there's expansion in baseball that we might actually reach out to Montreal again okay. and put a team there. Uh, and then there's in NBA, there's the failed uh, Vancouver Grizzlies who basically kind of set their sights on their success in the NBA with getting a early draft pick, and they drafted uh, Bryant Reeves from uh, University of Oklahoma, uh, otherwise known as Big Country, mm. who uh, spent his days in college breaking backboards up and down the NCAA uh, college campuses and okay. just with his sheer size. And was kind of supposed to be a second coming, like a white shack in a way. You know, oh, wow. Just kind of like this brute big guy who mm-hmm. was breaking backboards similarly. Uh, and it just never, he had, you know, injuries sidelined him. His his form of play didn't really translate to the speed of the NBA. And, uh, and ultimately that franchise failed when people didn't go to games. They were more involved in going to Vancouver Canucks games and mm-hmm. the BC Lions and and then we have the MLS, who has expanded to Canada. Uh, they have the 
Toronto FC, which is probably one of the older teams in Canada. And then they had the uh, Vancouver team was added in 2011 along with the uh, Portland team. And then uh, since then, they also added the Montreal Impact. And so, uh, you know, we've seen expansion up there in soccer. Uh, but as far as the NBA goes, uh, the Toronto Raptors are the sole survivor. Uh, or Indeed. designated survivor. Huh. Um, and so it's just interesting to see that, you know, how we kind of treat Canada as this kind of second-class U.S. citizen in a way. <laughs> like, like we're like, we, you know, we like you. And people have told me that in Canada, because I've been saying that if Canada can, if Toronto can win this tournament and get this trophy, um, they're going to be known as, like, kind of folk sports heroes mm-hmm. of Canada. Like, they're going to be on the Wheaties boxes. They're going to be mentioned in the pantheon of NHL champions and, uh, and you know, their gold medal winning Olympians. And, you know, uh, people have told me that, well, the rest of Canada doesn't even like Toronto. <laughs> they're just trying to be a little New York. And, and, and I get that, and they're probably right in the scope of, like, most things, but I guarantee Vancouver is watching these finals right now, mm-hmm. and they're rooting on their Canadian brethren and the Toronto Raptors. And, and I do think that, you know, currently Kawhi Leonard is their leader, and uh, Kawhi Leonard is, you know, in the last year of a contract, so they could technically... Um, you know, have to trade him or have him sign somewhere else. Uh, but I think if he wins this uh, tournament and this this uh, finals this year, that he will sign a max contract in Toronto. Because if he stays in Toronto, he's the LeBron James of Canada. Mm-hmm. If he moves to any other team in the league, he's just another player in the LeBron James era. And and even though he's still a top five player, no matter how you look at him or where he plays, um, it seems interesting to be the folk hero of a country. And I honestly think, I don't know if that's going to come into play in his negotiating or in his mindset when he makes this decision. I mean, obviously, he's going to include his family and what the money is and how potentially, you know, playoff bound that team is. But... Ultimately, if they get this done and he takes this trophy on a cross Canada tour, you mm-hmm. know, he goes to Calgary and Edmonton and Saskas- Saskatchewan, what? Yeah. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, <laughs> and you know Moose Jaw, uh, and he sees Canadians and they revel in his his abilities and his superpowerdom in a way that you really haven't seen a sole Canadian go through since maybe like Gretzky. Um, that he's going to see that these fans just give him more than he could ever receive in any L.A. Laker uniform or going back to San Antonio or moving on to Miami. And so uh, it's just it's interesting to me this kind of moment we have. It's interesting to me that, you know, uh, these sports have kind of this little kind of enclave of Canadian participation except for the nhl which is pretty much 50 percent and then like you know in football's case completely separate leagues yeah you know the nfl and the canadian football league or the cfl Mm -hmm. you know don't play games against each other have offsetting schedules uh different rules and everything and in a lot of ways like uh cfl is sometimes seen as a way for players that weren't too good to extend their careers 
Um, a, a couple of players have left the NFL, gone to the CFL, and actually re-experienced stardom and then came back to the NFL. Oh, yeah. Doug Flutie did that. I oh, think yeah. Warren, okay. Warren Moon did that. Oh, crap. Okay. Um, yeah. Ricky uh, Williams did that. Uh, That's not a name I'm familiar with. So Ricky Williams was the kind of Rasta guy on Miami who quit to basically smoke weed and become a Rasta. Oh, okay. And then when he came back, uh, he was still on suspension, so he went to the CFL and played on two teams up there. Oh, okay. And then came back and kind of got rehab, stopped smoking weed, became a yogi, and was picked as kind of this like veteran player on I think Baltimore was kind of where he ended up finishing oh okay um, and they did a 30 for 30 on him called run Ricky run but, oh. but other than that it's just interesting how the NFL yeah has a complete separation other than the Bills have played a couple home games in Toronto as a, a kind of a traditional thing they would play one home game there annually for a few years and I think they've kind of reduced that recently because they've been sent to London for a game pretty often. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of kind of losing the revenue and all the different things that go along with a home match, also just the proximity for your fans, uh, they've kind of wiped that off the, the schedule. They might play a, a preseason game there now, um, but it's no longer a regular season. But yeah, it's just kind of like just a conversation about what it means to represent your country in a sport, how we have these kind of uh, side interesting storylines of these teams that play in Canada and how the Toronto Raptors right now are at the forefront of that conversation being that they're competitive and that they're in a lead in the finals and could literally with a win tomorrow uh, raise a championship banner in the uh, Rogers Arena. So, yeah, pretty... It's a pretty cool moment, uh, and they also wear red and black like my Blazers, so it's been an easy transition to become a fan of theirs in this. Oh, there you go. In this finals. Uh, so. Rogers, the uh, AT&T of Canada. Yeah, the Rogers Communication Company. There's also a Rogers Chocolate Company. I just figure a lot of people's last name up there is Rogers. <laughs> you know, if you're not a McDonald, you're a Rogers. Well, that makes sense. But, yeah, that's just my little... My little uh, Extra topic. Um, so what do you got on Mr. Buttigieg? Right. So as we lead into the political action is lit in my soapbox. Uh, for my soapbox, I really just want to give you information on two things that are actionable um, um, in your neck of the woods. One is a series of videos that you should watch. And one is a group that I just came across that is really working on uh, corruption in government and what little ways we can work together in local chapters to work against that but before we do that I want to talk about Pete Buttigieg and Pete Buttigieg is the 37 year old uh mayor of South Bend Indiana uh some uh, some key points that people like to point out about him is that he's openly gay that he served in the military um and that he's a Rhodes Scholar and he also did a profiles and courage of Bernie Sanders some year back too uh, so he definitely clicks a lot of the boxes when it comes to progressive things. He's pro-choice. He's all about climate change. He's talked about um, the Green New Deal as like a set of ideas that need to be worked on. But the two key things that I think set him apart as a candidate outside of just, you know, his immutable characteristics, if you would, and his, you know, pedigree um, based on like what he's done is he talks about Medicare for all, but he specifically talks about Medicare for all who want it. Um, and he also has a plan for the Supreme Court uh, that I haven't really seen anywhere else as yet. But of course, like I haven't casted my wide reaching net. So the more and more people I look at, the more and more robust these uh, 
analysis or you know just understanding of their political platforms will be uh so the one if you don't know, and actually some of this is in a book that I haven't finished reading, but I did get to the part with um, the Supreme Court, um, and that is like, let me see, we need to start fighting dirty or something. I'll find the exact name of it, but basically his plan is that the Supreme Court should be 15 people total, five Democrats, five Republicans, and five rotating uh, judges that come from the lower court courts, both the regular court and the appeals court. And those individuals who are chosen should either be unanimously chosen by both the Democrats and Republicans or possibly by a supermajority. And even if you don't agree with the specifics of that, there's one thing to understand and one thing maybe to go into as you're maybe learning about how the Supreme Court works, whether you're on the right or the left, and that the, the Constitution does not mandate how big the Supreme Court needs to be. Uh, right. And and right now we've settled on nine, but before it's been seven, before it's been five, it's always been an, an odd number in order so there can be like an uneven split and, you know, there's not uh, like something that just wouldn't go through because there's a tie because there's no real tiebreakers in the Supreme Court as of right now that I know of. I might be ignorant to the the entire machinations of it, like maybe the Chief Justice can settle that or something in those cases, but I don't know. Uh but definitely it's interesting what he's trying to do because he's trying to take away the bipartisan idea of the Supreme Court and basically trying to collectively say, like, as Americans, collectively, what are the values that we hold supreme and in the Supreme Court should be representative of that. So I, th I think right. that's pretty interesting. <clears throat> Yeah, no, he's an interesting cat. And I mean, obviously coming from what's typically kind of known as a, a mostly conservative uh, state, mm -hmm. although South Bend uh, can leave liberal as a lot of these college age, kind of college based uh, cities can. Oh, and yeah. Notre Dame. Notre Dame's there. base there. And, and even though Notre Dame as a Catholic university wouldn't necessarily consider more liberal, it, it is than maybe the state of Indiana at large, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, similar to like Austin and the University of Texas, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and so yeah, with um, and then obviously with his background in uh in being in the military is is good uh, or has traditionally been something we seek in people at the executive level, mm -hmm. uh, and you know he's definitely he's a good communicator. He kind of reminds me of an Obama in his ability to communicate. He's, his cadence is very similar to Obama's, even down to the ahs and ums. It's <clears throat> so it's not weird, but it feels like they went to the same school for rhetoric, like political rhetoric. <laughs> political rhetoric, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, would it be funny if he stops saying he's been in the military and he just starts saying that he was a community organizer? <laughs> and then we're like, wait, are you just reading old Obama speeches? <laughs> and he like ducks behind the podium, which would be easy for him because he's kind of a small guy. No. All right, that's rude. I, I can't say that as a smaller person, right, so it's not AM. it's not really fair. Well, and it's like that they do say that. I don't even know what the what the shortest president we've elected is, but like they're all basically six foot. So, you know, that's an interesting thing. No one wants to be led by a short guy. Hey, man, we have ideas, too, okay? <laughs> Some of them are good. And listen, I do I have a campaign policy about eliminating the high shelf? Yeah, yeah, I do, you know, and doubling the low shelves. Come on. <laughs> Everyone can reach those. Um, but, no, he's an interesting character. And then, obviously, you know, I don't... <sighs> 
I hate that his sexuality even plays into any of this. I, I personally, you know, that's not something I need to know about my political uh, candidates in order to decide if I want to vote for them. But it is good in the sense of being a liberal and knowing that that gives value to uh, a certain perspective he's had living a life in 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 a in a era that we know because we know that he's you know from the early 80s uh to now uh hasn't always been so accepting you know and that you know he lives that life openly and um the you know struggles that go along with that can kind of alter his you know viewpoint on certain things that about maybe uh, people that are in groups that are not properly represented or are um, mishandled by the conservatives in, in how they're spoken of, you know. It was very interesting to hear about him when he was talking about his coming out story because he didn't come out fully until he was about 33 years old, and he did it during the middle of his reelection for his mayorship in South Bend, and he wasn't really sure if the residents of South Bend, if that would resonate with them in a poor way or just in a way where they didn't care, and ultimately, he got reelected with 80% of the vote, so it looked like ultimately they didn't care about that, and they cared about who he was as a policymaker. And I definitely or, or I should say someone who runs a small constituency. Uh -huh. And he talks about that a lot. Like when it comes to him being a mayor, he feels like, yeah, I've done it in the smaller scale. And now I want to do it on the bigger scale. And he's definitely talked about making a cabinet cabinet that is more multicultural and more open when it comes to his diversity of both uh, ethnicity, uh, race and thoughts. So. So, yeah, he seems pretty cool so far. It, I'll, I'm very open to see where he goes to next and if he comes up with bigger policy initiatives or more fleshed out policy initiatives like I did with Elizabeth Warren, I'll bring it up again in callbacks. Yeah. And uh, on a quick note, um, just because, uh, you know, I did take a trip recently to Alabama. So oh, yeah. Speaking on the conservative issues and kind of the things that I touched on when I was there, um, is that I, I recognized that um, there is definitely a conservative sentiment. That's the kind of you need to believe this or you're kind of ostracized mm. in the communities. Um, I, I do notice um, in speaking with a few people that were younger or um, hearing from some people who are like seniors in high school uh, that I saw at this kind of restaurant that they were working at that my mom was familiar with a few of them and so I was able to kind of ask them like hey is this interesting and they don't really side with the major issues that we're hearing about like the abortion issue coming out of Alabama uh -huh. they, they, they want to take that power away from these old men that are making these decisions for them oh of course and um, and they find that sentiment to be you know similar around the people in their classes and stuff and and that could could paint a, a, a better brighter future for an America where we don't consider the South to be intolerant you know they could be conservative without being intolerant you know it's the intolerance that crosses a line so far that we we can't um, continue to support them yeah and that's where like a lot of the very feelings and right. political rhetoric come from in those interactions as well too right and and then the issue currently is that those people that do have that mindset typically leave the state mm -hmm. and so you're not getting a retention of these um, competitive values these things that can actually stand against uh, the conservative movement and of the kind of religious right that we see and that being said is the other part is a lot of the 
focus of Alabama politics comes from the communities themselves. The people kind of orchestrate a feeling about how they want you to live their your life and and they kind of expect you to follow those ideals they expect you to get married before you have children they expect you to not be out in public drinking mm-hmm. and going to bars and bourbon houses and things i heard sentiments of a local um businessman bought a space in the downtown of an alabama town opened up a, a kind of niche bourbon bar and having the like community uh, rumor mill mm. be about anybody who was a teacher, or a lawyer, or wow. a person of a church going into that facility. And be like, oh. Well, you know, they were seen going into the bourbon bar. Wow. Yeah. And so it was interesting wow. to hear that 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 that's a you know, it's a level where you don't want necessarily the people around you to have those negative feelings about you. So they might alter how you actually live your life. And I think that goes into other areas like, you know, how you act when you're being black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are a product of your environment. Right. So. Or being gay. You mm-hmm. know? And, and then that was kind of the final straw was I did attend a, uh, a Baptist um, uh, service and, and I did so out of respect for my family who, who went to this one church. And, and I just wanted to hear what and, and, and be open minded enough to receive the information and not make a scene, not walk out, even in protest, even though it seems like if it got to a level where I was offended, I could and had that option. I wanted to just hear it as if I'm kind of like a journalist. No, that makes sense. Like, I'm not here to take this personally. I'm here to hear the message that's being delivered. Of course. And, you know, there was probably five, 600 people in that service. And the message was, at times, that the LGBTQ community have an agenda. And not only do they have an agenda, but that this agenda is what's making our world more perverse today. Oh my God. Which takes so many leaps of faith. First of, first of all, it, it has to make you believe the fact that you think the world is more perverse today. Second of all, to say to some degree that homosexuality or people who uh, fall into those categories uh, somehow are uh, elevating this pervasiveness or, or, you know, and then not pervasiveness, but uh, perverseness. And mm-hmm. then, and then uh, ultimately that the LGBT community has some type of hierarchy and strut like there's a, a grand gay wizard somewhere you know no they just want to live their lives as people 100%. And, they, and they just want to stop being marginalized for it because people think it's wrong like, right it's, it's not it's not that hard but right? it's, it's super simple actually this statement <laughs> didn't only go unquestioned it went supported he was and he, he went on a a, a a you know railing on it for about 15 minutes now i don't think this message is being delivered in all churches in all of alabama or all of the south i think you know this might have been you know one sermon at one baptist church in one state in one town but um it's pride month so it's relevant i guess i mean there yeah but then also i was told that there was a methodist church in town that allowed um gay parishioners and that also they had female or women uh as uh priests there mm-hmm. and that's something that the, the church that i went to didn't has never happened and won't is not there they don't allow it so mm-hmm. um it's interesting it was pride month um you hear a little less about it down on the gulf coast because they have a proximity to florida 
Mm-hmm. And Florida, like, <laughs> ends up being one of the more progressive states in the South when you think about their, like, dealings with, you know, homosexuality and kind of the representation that comes out of, like, Miami, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's just funny to think of florida in at any measure uh liberal but it's it's more progressive at least than a lot of the conservative south it's all relative and so it somehow it trickles down in the gulf area across state lines to alabama a little bit and they were talking about the the bit of windfall that had occurred from the previous pride weekend Mm -hmm. and and you know the people that were working in the hotels and the beaches there were like oh they're so festive and it was fun and oh you know you just gotta you know i might not support their way of life but you know they just having fun and you're just kind of like okay well that's interesting right you say it that way yeah but um but yeah uh when i was flying into alabama the person told me well when you go to alabama people are going to ask you how you're doing and which church you go to (laughs) yeah so that's like question number two there yeah oh gosh i couldn't deal because i'm agnostic atheist as fuck and i'd be like oh no yeah (laughs) i've I've always said the last 20 years that you know snowboarding is my church (laughs) that i I take i take a lift up to the top of the mountain i get to a spot where i can't see any of the man-made structures like the lodge or the chairlift and i just take a moment to like look out over the landscape Mm -hmm. across valleys cross to snowy uh, peaks in the distance and just have a moment of the uh, kind of small nature of my impact on this world that mm-hmm. I am I am so uniquely non-impressive comparatively to the you know the sun and the and the and the peaks and the and the trees that surround me in that moment and and I and I kind of get a little zen to borrow a term from uh from other religions uh moment and 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 I I consider that my my pulpit and and then I consider the involvement my kind of service and then the mountain itself becomes my church and that you know also the fact that i usually snowboard on weekends so occasionally on sundays oh yeah no totally is where this kind of doctrine came out of um but i hold that to be true it's the closest thing that i have because i do believe like the earth the universe is my is my practice and and you know it, it you know the universe isn't perfect and the universe does for some reason do like there is a way to say the universe does what the universe will do so there is like the phrase everything happens for a reason mm-hmm. can be fulfilled scientifically in that proposal it's the kind of mm-hmm. malcolm uh gladwell but also uh ian malcolm from jurassic park oh yeah life will find, find a way <laughs> uh kind of thought you know and so um, I just want to le- like uh, interject that into the convo since it just happened. Uh, no, are- that's very insightful. And yeah, before we go on this very long but very substantive episode, I want to give you two resources. The first one is uh, Represent Us. Uh, you can find it at act.represent.us. Um, and basically they talk about corruption in our just whole political system and they talk about you know big things we've talked about before like gerrymandering uh voter suppression and other things that are basically limiting people's ability to actually be active in government and they have a whole string of things that they're working on um let me see if i can actually pull up a plan or something like that because they i saw a video with jennifer lawrence in it 
Um, and they talked a, a lot about it. There's an anti, sorry, there's an American Anti-Corruption Act that's supposed to set the standard for city, state, and federal laws for stopping political bribery, ending secret money, and fixing broken elections. And one of the interesting things that mm, they talked to and that I talked to before once we entered after the 2018 elections is kind of seeing things happen at the state level. Right. And and ultimately they said there's this spike. Basically like if enough states do something, then it happens federally. So like we're right. starting to see that with marijuana and they went back and they gave examples of same sex or both same sex marriage and interracial marriage and how that spike went and it's at about 30 states is when basically the federal government goes, "Oh, Maybe we should be doing that, too. Right. Um, and actually kind of a counter to that, the new abortion laws that are coming through. There's only been about 10 states right now uh, that have done the, basically the heartbeat bill thing. And I don't remember the specifics of it, but calling it a heartbeat at six weeks is actually not scientifically accurate. But, you know, I digress. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that's what they're shooting for anyway. No, I, I know they're not. I just wanted to point that out there yeah. just so people know that, like, that's more of a colloquialism than it is, like, scientifically correct. Totally. Um, But, yeah, so working with them and I've been talking to some people to start trying to go to some meetings that they have. Their meetings are a little bit too far out for me to reach right now, but maybe – if they have webinars and stuff, I can report back on that and give you more actionable things because, you know, that's the whole point of the segment political action is lit is because it is lit and you should go out and do it because we really need it in this day and age. And the last other thing, too, because I always want to give you things that will grow your brain. And this one really helped me because I've been able to use it as a practical resource. And it's Crash Course. And I know I talk about Crash Course a lot on here, but I think they give they produce really good content. And I think this is one of the best content things that I've seen from them. And and it kind of piggybacks off of something I watched with them with media literacy. But this one is called Navigating Digital Information. And basically the whole point of this is a set of 11 videos that basically says with the cluster fluck of information that we get on the Internet and how it can be, you know, today's word pernicious, um, that just gives you the tools to actually be able to disseminate whether or not it's good information or bad information. Because one key thing that I learned from media literacy that um, I think you should always be thinking of and even think of with us is that the foundation of media analysis is acknowledging that all media is constructed with a purpose and a particular point of view. You know what my point of view is. You know what Mikel's point of view is. You know it may agree. You may agree with it. You might disagree with it. But at least when you go into it with that, you'll understand where we're coming from. And if you start going to other websites and especially official things and try to figure out what they are, I would watch the whole video series. But one of the key things that I got from it um, is asking three questions when you want to really dive deep into something is number one, who is behind this information? Number two, what is the evidence for their claims? And three, what do other sources say about the organization and its claims? And when you start to dive into that a little bit, you can see, you know, are they actually trying to just give you the information or are they trying to skew your certain point of view? So, yeah. That's very interesting stuff. Um, 
yeah, I think that brings us to the conclusion of this episode, man. Indeed. Um, as always, you can get a hold of me at, on Twitter at Seatown Mayor, helping your municipality by the coast. Always, as always, there is uh, hylbox at gmail.com, the official email of our show. Give us a, a, a word there, whether you like the show, don't like the show, had an opinion on what we talked about. And uh, where can they get a hold of you, Chaz? Uh, yeah, hit us up on our uh, email if you want to be on the show, too, because I just remember that it's called How You Living because I basically want to ask y'all how you're living and how all of this has affected your life, you know, how well you're doing. You know, just, like, talk to the people and see what their lives are like. So I want to hear from you. Uh, if you really want to get at me, too, you can find me at ChazBaz on the Twitters or the Instagrams. And also, trying to, I haven't done a lot on TikTok. I just have a video of me singing to my roommate's cat. It's okay, I guess. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so hopefully I'll hear from y'all. Hopefully you loved this episode because I loved recording it. I, it was really substantial, and I got to say a lot of things that I've been wanting to say for a while. So, yeah. And, uh, oh. yeah, with that, um, uh, I would agree and say, uh, you know, definitely uh, pay attention out there to this upcoming election. Uh, have your voice heard. Participate in any uh, early voting or um, polling that you might come across and uh, help uh, let people know that we um, support change in this country in a positive way. So, indeed, uh, Chaz, it's been long, but it's been fun. Uh, let's get out of here and catch up with these guys later. Hell yeah! All right, we out. Peace. Peace. That black Jump in, 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 in. You might want to keep scores. I win, 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 win. Four arm tattoos. That's squad, 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 squad. All of them go shoot. Don't try, 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 try.